everybody's looking for the key to success to help them grow, to become more successful. You're not going to find it in a sales book. You're not going to find it in a marketing book, a book on competitive advantage, a book on strategy, a book on innovation. No, it's going to be an understanding how to build mental toughness, resiliency. That's what you need. That it's a set up, not a setback. Because I refuse to allow a negative circumstance to dictate my life. You think it's actually going to work out that way. (laughs) Here's the thing that you don't understand. Is that it's never going to beat me down. It's never going to defeat me. I'm never going to allow this to beat me. Because life doesn't happen to me. It happens for me. There are demons all around us. Demons in the form of fear. Anxiety, guilt, depression, sadness, bullying, learned helplessness, negativity. And if we allow these demons to control us, we will only continue to lose the battle on mental health. It's time for us to cut the crap from our lives and go on offense against these demons by building mental toughness and resiliency. That's why you're here. My name is Ryan Caligiuri, and welcome to the Cut the Crap Show. What is going on, everybody? Thank you so much for joining yours truly, Ryan Caligiuri, on this week's episode of the Cut the Crap Show, where every single week, you know what I'm doing. I'm reading a book, condensing it down to its core golden nuggets. I'm bringing the author on the show to have a conversation about the golden nuggets, and I'm here with you every single week, just trying to save you a little bit of time, bring you some information that can spark change in your life, and I'm here helping you build mental toughness and resilience every single week. All right, a few things. Housekeeping here. Uh, first things first, a little bit of gratitude. Thank you to every single one of you who took some time out of your day to send me an email, send me a message on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, maybe a YouTube comment, for example. All of you who take the time out of your day to message me and share with me how the show, the Cut the Crap show is impacting you or how CY8, how Create Your Aid is impacting you, that means everything to me. That's the fuel that keeps me going. That makes me feel good. And so for all of you out there who have done that or will do that, thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. That means so much to me. And uh, again, the YouTube channel, obviously Ryan Caligiuri, search for me up on YouTube and I relaunched the daily vlog, CY8, Create Your 8, where every single day I'm going to be highlighting different aspects of uh, Create Your 8 and it'll teach you how to build resilience, how to build mental toughness. Because I believe resilience can be taught and this is a medium that I am using to teach you how to become more resilient, how to become more mentally tough. That and you can finally see the good-looking mug behind this voice. If you don't know what I look like because you haven't connected with me, you can see what I look like on the show. So again, it's a different medium. Super excited that I launched it, so give it a look. Also, uh, thank you to all of you patrons out there who have taken some time to go to my Patreon page. If you go to the CutTheCrapShow.com, you'll see a big red button there. You click that big red button and it gives you an opportunity to donate to the show. And uh, this $5 every single month that comes out of your credit card. And that just goes to me and helps me fuel causes that I'm giving back to. And for myself right now, I'm giving back to um, animal shelters that are in dire need of assistance. And so many of you have done <laughs> like, I don't, I guess I'm just a little bit floored at how many of you have reached out and have become a patron. I know it's five bucks and five bucks, you know, doesn't mean a lot to you guys, but it means a lot to me. So, Thank you so much because it shows that you care. It shows that you love what I'm doing and that you're supporting me. And I'll tell you right now, like every time I see that email come through of a new patron, I get filled with gratitude. And a big piece to this is also me starting a relationship with you. When you donate that $5, I put you on a text board that every single morning I share different inspirational stories, different anecdotes, um, different lessons. And I share that with you every morning. So I hope that when you wake up in the morning, you pick up your phone, you got a message from me waiting there for you. And that's my way of just giving back and saying thank you and trying to add value for your contribution. So thank you so much to all of you who have already donated. And thank you in advance to all you who will donate in the future. Truly means a lot to me. All right, so let's kick this thing off. Today we are talking to Jessica Leahy about her book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. Now, I think this is really important because when we're talking about building resilience, we can't forget about our kids. Teaching our kids how to be resilient, children, teenagers, young adults, so that when they become adults, they've learned so many lessons that will protect their mind. 
They'll be able to deal with hardship. They'll be able to look at difficulties and not be discouraged by it. They'll be able to be more self-aware of their own emotions and be able to deal with the negativity in their lives and not run from it, but face it head on. And many people, they believe that if you want to be a good parent, that means that you got to manage your child's life. You have to shield them from difficulties. You got to get involved when things get really tough at school or on the playground. You know, you got to protect them from bullies. You got to keep them from falling. You know, all this stuff. A lot of people think that's what good parenting is about. But if you prevent your kids from falling, if you try to smooth over obstacles, and if you try to rescue them from consequences of their mistakes, you're denying them the experiences that they need to internalize lessons about being resourceful, social competence, and of course, resilience. This is why I'm so excited to have Jessica on the show, because Jessica is a parenting expert. So for all you parents out there who are not only interested in learning how to build your own resilience, but how to build resilient children, she's the person to ask. So on that note, let's kick this thing off. Let's get uh, an introduction from Jessica telling us a little bit about who she is, what she does, and why she wrote this book in the first place. Yeah, so I've been, I've been a teacher for 20 years. I actually thought I was going into juvenile law and, and derailed into teaching, which was the best thing that ever happened to me. And, uh, and I also have two kids myself. I have two boys. And I've taught every grade from 6 to 12. And, and just over time was beginning to notice that the kids were increasingly not interested in learning, and they were telling me they were less interested in learning, that they were fairly obsessed with the grades and the points and the scores. They were less motivated. Um, parents were sort of swooping in and rescuing them, bringing them stuff that they'd forgotten at home, all of these. And frankly, when you teach middle school, it's a, a daily exercise in you know disaster management, which is the fun of teaching middle school. It's my favorite. Um, but all of these incredible learning opportunities were just disappearing because every single time we would start to have a great learn you know one of those great learning moments where you start talking to a kid about strategies for next time and stuff like that the parent would run through the door with the homework and sort of get rid of the entire the need to learn anything so um, I, and the problem was I was on a very high horse, as often happens, <laughs> and looking down on these parents and thinking, oh, my gosh, look at what you're doing wrong. And then I realized I was doing the exact same thing to my own children. And it was embarrassing and humiliating, but also was the birth of um, research into how to keep kids motivated and, and excited about learning for the sake of the learning and how to keep them focused on the process and a little less on the product. And the problem was, as I also figured out along the way, that some of the things that we're doing to kids um, in terms of you know, saving them from frustration uh, makes it so that they're actually less able to learn when they get to school. All right, so let's kick this episode off with golden nugget number one, parenting for autonomy. This is a new term for me. I've never heard about this one before, parenting for autonomy. But essentially what it means is you are raising resilient children who become self-sufficient adults. And what parent doesn't want that for their children? So let's dig into this one a little bit more with Jessica. Parenting for autonomy. Well, that, the research on that really came from this woman named Wendy Grolnick. And I mean, autonomy supportive parenting is a concept that's been around for a while. But Wendy's research was really interesting in that she found that the, the kids of autonomy supportive parents, parents who... Um, when given when their kids were given a difficult task were and the parents were instructed to be there while their child completed the task uh, were there they were supportive they would help redirect the kid in a gentle sort of the way teachers do it by helping you know um, the kid find the answer under their own steam as opposed to handing them the answer versus directive parents she also uses the word controlling but we'll stick with directive <laughs> the parents who really sort of feed each step, one at a time, okay, first do this, now do this, sometimes took over the task. The kids who had the autonomy supportive parents were much more likely to complete frustrating tasks when they were later removed from their parents' presence. Um, whereas the directive, the kids of the directive or the controlling parents tended to get frustrated and give up when presented with a frustrating task. And as you can probably see where I'm going with this, best teaching happens. Some of our most effective teaching tools require kids to be pushed just beyond what they think they can handle to discover, oh my gosh, I'm competent enough to do this myself. And, you know, there's this one tool called uh, Desirable Difficulties. It turns out that when we can push through that frustration, when we can parse information that's difficult for us to get into our heads, 
we not only understand it more deeply in the short term, we'll retain it more durably over the long term. So you can see that kids who can't do that, kids who get frustrated and give up, um, because they've been highly directed by parents, teachers, mm-hmm. coaches, whomever, mostly I suppose parents, since that's what we're talking about, mm-hmm. are going to be less likely to benefit from desirable difficulties, which is frankly one of the most powerful teaching tools I have in my toolbox. Is it ever too late? So a child is 14, 15 years old and their parent has been, you know, directive parenting for all their life. Is it too late <laughs> at that point in time? Absolutely not. The nice thing, so the nice thing about, you know, switching over with younger kids, um, it's, and I'll, I'll give you sort of these beginning uh, ways to get started um, in just a minute, but the, with little kids, you know, you can just subtly move over, start giving them more responsibility, mm-hmm. stop nagging and telling them how to do things and let them struggle just a little bit more and, and watch them sort of, you know, evolve their skills of, you know, coping with the frustration and figuring out that they can handle it. Um, that's easy when kids are little. But when kids get older, it's harder to just switch over. But the nice thing is when kids are older, you can talk to them about it. And when you talk to them about it and say things like, you know what, sweetie, I think I've been underestimating you. I think I've been doing too much for you. I think I've been assuming that you can't handle things, and that's been unfair. But I learned some stuff, and and I want to do better. And by doing that, not only are you giving them a clear understanding of what's going to happen going forward, you're modeling for them exactly what you want to see in them, which is messing something up, getting more information and learning from it and moving forward um, from a place of that knowledge, doing what um, what Tim Harford in his book Adapt calls either adapting or having a positive response to failure, you know, moving forward with good information and doing better next time. Mm. So just model that for them, and that's what, what happens when we sort of do a mea culpa and say, yes. but I want to do better. Also is that in kids who are feeling really, really helpless, it's this state of what's called learned helplessness. Mm -hmm. The research is really clear, and um, there was a recent roundup sort of on all the research on learned helplessness, and it turns out that the answer to learned helplessness, the way to combat learned helplessness, is to give more control back Mm -hmm. to the person. So when a person is just a kid, especially just lying there saying, I can't do it, I can never, (laughs) ever do it, giving them more control back and saying things like, you know, well... You know what kind of what kind of a future can you imagine where you can do this thing, and maybe what what do you think we could do in order to help you make this happen, and and sort of helping them strategize for ways they can have success and have more uh, control over that success is the perfect antidote to learned helplessness. I love that last point she was mentioning about helping you overcome learned helplessness, and that's something that not only is good for kids, but it's good for you as an adult as well. Learning to overcome learned helplessness. How do you do that? You do things that give you more control. You try to take more control of your life. And you stop believing that life is out of your control. And there's so many different directions that I can take that in. And it's not going to be here as a transition from Golden Nugget number one to Golden Nugget number two. But this is definitely something I talk about on Create Your Eight, that YouTube show. And something we're just going to be talking about a little bit more on this show as well. So let's get into Golden Nugget number two. And I love this one because we've talked about this on previous episodes of the Cut the Crap Show. A growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And your goal as a parent should be to help your children develop a growth mindset and help them avoid developing a fixed mindset. So what is a growth mindset? What is a fixed mindset? And how do we help our children move towards one and move away from another? Let's get into this one. Well, I, first of all, obviously, this is all Carol Dweck. This is not me. Please go read the book Mindset. Um, Mindset has been oversimplified in the media, grossly oversimplified in the media, and really distilled down to a message that a lot of parents are hearing, which is um, don't praise your kid for being smart. Praise them for their effort, which is really just stupid. It's a ridiculous oversimplification of what is actually a much more nuanced uh, concept. And the concept is essentially that kids who understand how their brains work, that the harder they work, the more they challenge themselves to try, you know, the challenge problems, the extra credit, harder stuff, the asking questions and sort of challenging their beliefs about what they do and don't know, which is called metacognition, that the more their brains will grow and make new connections. And adolescence in particular is this time of exploding brain connections. And then once that's done, this process of pruning to become more efficient. And so the more kids are are really challenging themselves, the more intelligent they can become. And that's 
understanding that, um, even on just sort of a gut level, is a growth mindset. Whereas a fixed mindset is this understanding that a lot of kids have, which is, and it's a false understanding of how intelligence works, that you're born with a certain IQ point, um, and by the way, we need to stop giving kids IQ tests unless it's uh, you know, there's some really super important reason to do it. And if you're going to do it, do not tell your child what their score is. <laughs> Please go read the book Ungifted by Scott Barry Kaufman. It is a really great book about um, the problems with our current uh, in- quote-unquote intelligence <laughs> tests. Um, but thinking that they have this sort of here's my IQ number and things are either going to be easy for me or they're going to be hard for me or whatever that mindset is about their intelligence. And then when they get evidence to the contrary, like they try something difficult and they don't do well on it, suddenly they're faced with this, oh my gosh, I am not as intelligent as people think I am. And now I am going to have to protect it. I'm going to, and in fact, uh, kids who have a fixed mindset about their intelligence tend to cheat more often. Um, I, the, this feeling that they are somehow fraud, and that's where, you know, imposter dreams come from. And it's the same thing for kids who, you know, think that they're dumb. Um, They're just, their understanding about their intelligence is wrong. It is not a fixed quantity. It is not something you're born with that you're not born with. It's a mixture of what you're, the horsepower you're born with and this constant sort of pushing yourself to try things that are challenging for you, whether that's harder math problems or learning a musical instrument or trying something that just is outside your comfort zone. Hmm. So helping kids understand that, that that's really how their brain works um, from the very beginning is, you know, the one of the most important things we can do. Now, a big piece of developing a growth mindset, in my opinion, is developing goals. I have goals for myself that I set, that I work towards, that I'm focused on. And I'd argue that it's important for every single person. If you're trying to build resilience, if you're trying to create your eight, You need goals. And it's so funny that we just seem to gloss over this. We just think, yeah, goal setting, whatever. I get it. I know it's important, but whatever. What else you got for me? How else can I build resilience? And people just kind of like to gloss over that. You can't. It's so important. I don't care if you're a child, a teenager, young adult, an adult. doesn't matter. You all need goals. Whether it's a health-related goal, a financial-related goal, a career-related goal, a relationship-related goal, a spiritual goal. doesn't matter what it is. You need goals to work towards. So now in the context of this book, we're talking about kids. I'm interested in Jessica's approach to doing goal setting for children. How can you go about doing that as a parent? So as an, you know, when I was teaching middle school, uh, I now teach high school, but when I was teaching middle school in particular, we would do sort of weekly, I would check in with my advisees and we'd have a couple of short-term goals and we'd have a long-term goal. And the short-term goals had to be these things that were actionable, that were something that was under their control that they could do. It wasn't like, you know, get an A in math. Well, there's lots of factors there. So let's break it down. What are the things you can control this week? So I realized, I don't know what my problem was, but I realized I had never tried that with my own kids. Mm. So we started sitting down and talking about sort of, okay, for this semester, for this new year, for this new season, what are, let's make three goals each. And um, we would each sort of come up with three things that, you know, we thought we would try to do this coming season. And one of them always has to be a little bit scary, a little bit outside your comfort zone, a little bit tough. And um, it's been really interesting not only to watch my kids try to achieve those goals and fail to achieve them often, which is totally cool because, right, it's your own personal goal. Who the heck cares? And then also watching them achieve these things that and set goals that are things that I would never have dreamed up for them. Like I have one kid that's kind of introverted and and one of his goals was to make some new friends. And I had no idea this was even something that was on cooking on his back burner. But it was clearly very important to him. And so we were able to, that conversation was then opened, and we were able to say things like, so what kind of stuff are you doing to try to make new friends? And we were able to talk about it over time. And, you know, if it didn't happen, then we were able to talk about, okay, well, let's set that goal. You can set that goal again and try again this semester. So goals are incredibly important because, Like I said, if you don't make them, it's not a big deal, especially for kids who are, you know, these sort of perfectionist kids who feel like if they fail at anything, they are total failures. Personal goals are great for that. Plus, it helps you get to know yourself and your kid. 
um, you know, the goals that kids set for themselves are often not the ones that we would pick for them. And that is so cheating if you try to push your kid to have a goal like, oh, what if one of your goals was let's do better in math this semester? <laughs> you can push them to make, you know, you could say, well, maybe one of your goals is academic, but it's a really great way to get to know your kids. And when kids feel like we know them or we see them, it makes a huge difference in our relationships with them. Golden nugget number four. This one is all about the control-seeking parent. How many of you out there are micromanaging your children's lives? You're planning out everything they're doing. You want to know everything that's going on in their lives and you want to control absolutely every facet of their life because that's what you think good parenting is about. Well, if you're doing that, Jessica argues that you should probably stop and you are a control-seeking parent and you're not doing your children any favors. Well, there's a bunch of downsides to that. And, you know, I told, like I said, I have been in this situation. I, I have to battle against this all the time. I, I want to call, if my son is having trouble in class, I want to call the teacher and say, look, what's going on? I want to, you know, call up the parent of that kid who was mean to my kid and say, look, get control of your kid. I want, you know, I want to do those things. But the problem is, is that there's so many incredible opportunities that are lost when you do that. Not only do we set our kids up to not, you know, be able to, as I mentioned before, to have this situation where they're not able to handle frustration with difficult tasks, but they also, they sort of don't have to strategize for themselves because they know we're going to take care of it for them. And it comes down to even little things like, you know, if your kid forgets his homework all the time, delivering it to him is the one way to make sure he's going to continue to forget it, right? Because he knows he doesn't have to come up with his own strategy. So, you know, when I go speak at schools, I say the the very first thing you should do if you're really concerned with the development of the whole kid and not just a set of grades that will make you look good when they get into a good college is to make a rule that there's no more dropping off lost items or forgotten items after first bell. Hmm. And make sure you the parents understand that, um, you know, you're there to really help the kid develop into a competent, resourceful, problem-solving kind of kid. And, and if that's your goal, and if parents understand that's your goal, then everyone can be in it together. But it's really just about those, those lost opportunities, hmm. you know. And it takes some planning. I mean, little things like... I fly a lot for work. I speak at schools all over the country and and for community organizations all over the country, and I try to take my kids with me as much as I can. And little things like when we step into the airport, sometimes I'll hand the boarding pass or hand my iPhone to the kid and say, Okay, what do we do? How do we get what you know? How do you work that kiosk? How do we check? Where do we go to check in bags? How does security work? When do you need an ID and when do you not? Because we seem to be under the impression that they're watching us and that they're learning as we go, but lots of kids aren't. Um, It's like when you're learning how to drive and you suddenly realize that you'd never really been paying attention the whole time and you didn't know how the roads where where the roads went. Mm -hmm. It's the same sort of thing. They're just sort of knowing we're going to handle it for them and they don't really learn it just by watching us. Uh, I absolutely love that example that Jessica shared about bringing her kids to the airport and allowing her kids the opportunity to make decisions figure things out for themselves because teaching your kids to do that at a young age is so important because it's going to help them make decisions in the future. It's going to help them process information, then be very concrete in which direction they take. You're teaching your kids how to be assertive. You're teaching them certainty. You're teaching them how to make decisions. I love that. And the airport is just one example out of so many. You could teach your kids how to take responsibility and give them the opportunity to make decisions for themselves all the time. You know, if you're going out and washing your car today, bring your kid with you. Show your kid how to do that. Teach them how to use the wand. Teach them how to switch from soap to brush to, to the, to the, the uh, what do you call it, the pressure washer. Give them responsibility. Which actually is funny enough because that leads us into golden nugget number five, which is all about family responsibility. There are so many opportunities for you to educate your children. Teach them lessons by giving them family responsibility. But what exactly is family responsibility and how exactly do you use family responsibility to develop resilience? So this is actually one of the biggest questions I get, one of the most frequently asked questions I get. And number one, um, from the very beginning, you know, lots of people call them chores. I don't. I think I don't want to do something that's labeled (laughs) a chore. It sounds horrible. So... (laughs) 
you know, I call them household duties or, you know, family obligations or whatever. And um, I'm a huge fan of a book by Ron Lieber, the York money columnist for the New York Times. He wrote a book called The Opposite of Spoiled. And he and I are in complete agreement on this, which is you do not pay kids for doing responsibilities around the house. If your kid wants to dream up some extra things in order to make some extra money, totally cool. But the stuff that they do around the house is part of being a part of a family. And there's research to support the the reasons for that, the reasons we should be doing that. And and some of it is that kids who have a hand in supporting the family, um, whether that there was one one study that looked at kids during the Great Depression, um, kids who were able to go out and earn a tiny bit of money, you know, even if it was just penny money to, you know, for taking in laundry, um, when we're less um, emotionally damaged by the the depression, the Great Depression, um, there's another study that shows that when kids are part of contributing to household duties, to contributing to just making the household work well, when big bad emotional things go down, divorce, economic hardship, you know, mental illness, addiction, any of those things the kids are less harmed on an emotional level because they feel like they have some control. They have some what's called self-efficacy. They're contributing. And taking away a sense of contribution from kids is something that has sort of evolved over time. We're at a place now where I know plenty of kids that have absolutely no responsibility around the house, and that's really unfair to do to kids because the sense of purpose they get from being a part of a functioning family that's actually running because they're helping run it is is really really important i absolutely love this golden nugget on family responsibility because it provides you with the opportunity to teach your kids how to take responsibility throughout the micro moments in the day and what i mean by that is that we're not trying to teach them big you know large-scale changes it's the small stuff For example, when your kid wakes up in the morning and they have oatmeal and they leave their bowl there before they go to school, you might want to stop them and explain to them, hey, you know, don't nag at them. Hey, don't forget to put your bowl in the dishwasher. And you want to make sure you rinse it out first because if you don't rinse it out and you leave it there, it's going to be really hard and it's going to be really hard for you to clean when you get back from school. Be logical with them. Communicate with them and make sure that you are holding them accountable to pulling their weight around the house. It doesn't matter if they're an adult, if, if they're a, a small child, they're a small child. You start by teaching them to put their toys away in their toy box. If they're a young kid, you teach them how to clean the kitchen. If they're a little bit older, you can teach them how to do the laundry, clean the bathrooms, vacuum, all those things. Do the lawn, for example, cut, cut your grass, pull the weeds. Responsibility is so key. And I, I found it very interesting that she says, don't pay your kids for that because I was paid as a kid to do my chores, right? It was my job to dust, to vacuum, to take out garbages. And I got paid to do that. Right? My sister got paid for cleaning the bathroom, cleaning the kitchen. She never did a good job of that, but whatever. That's for another discussion. <laughs> but I love the point that she said about if you want to pay your kids, don't pay them for doing household chores. Pay them for going above and beyond. And something my very good friend um, who is probably going to listen to this show, he came up with a brilliant idea where you create a list of tasks that go above and beyond the chores, the daily chores in the household. And if your kids want to make money, If they want to buy something, for example, they have to earn it. So how they earn it is you give them a list of chores with a certain monetary value attached to it. You know, maybe, for example, it's painting the fence. We'll pay you $50 if you paint the fence. Or I don't know what what it is, right? It could be whatever, resodding your grass. I don't know what the task is. You come up with that for yourself. But you come up with a list of tasks and you just post that for them. So if they want money, if they want to buy something, they have an opportunity here to make money. But again, you're teaching them responsibility. You're teaching them that hard work is important and that you don't get any free rides. And that for me, man, that's a huge one. That's so big. So definitely lots to take away from there. So let's move into golden nugget number six now, which is all about social interaction and the role that social interaction plays in helping your children develop resilience. Well, it's incredibly important to do that. But the problem is, you know, as much as I would like to say kick your kid outside and they'll go figure out how to play kick the can until it's you know till the sun goes down there are no kids outside just playing kick the can because everyone is at a scheduled practice a scheduled class in a tutoring session so it's unfair to parents to say look if you just kick your kid outside they'll figure it out on their own and they'll make friends and go play it just it's not it's not really a viable solution anymore however that said um you know we have we have 
incredibly overscheduled kids. Um, Bridget Schulte has written about this. Um, she has a fantastic book about it. There's a whole bunch of books about the fact that, you know, when we overload, when we overschedule kids, we are not doing them any um, service. And, you know, we're doing them a huge disservice. And, you know, the pushback I get when I'm out talking um, to parents, and I often talk about the importance of sleep and ways to talk to your kids about the importance of sleep, parents will say, well, you know, how on earth is my kid supposed to get enough sleep? Because the school gives so much homework that when my kid gets home from piano and soccer practice, and he's starting his homework at nine, blah, blah, blah. And I have to push back and say, look, it's not just that the school is giving a lot of homework, which is a totally separate subject that I'm happy to talk about. It has some very, very, very loud thoughts on homework. But you have to be the parent and realize that if your kid is not getting home from school or practice or whatever until 9 o'clock at night, possibly your child is overscheduled. And downtime is incredibly important. Um, there's a, a researcher, Mary Helen Imordino Yang at um, USC, and she's written this. Inc- she has these incredible articles on the importance of time to engage in what's essentially called your default network, this um, default mode, uh, which is where your brain. It's like when you're in the shower. You have all those good ideas in the shower because you're in this um, this mode in your brain where you're kind of free associating, and that is a time when incredible stuff happens. It's when breakthroughs happen. It's when problem-solving happens. It's when creativity is at its best, and kids just don't get a lot of time for that. So, yes, that does mean that um, you have to give kids downtime, and no, that does not mean that they're allowed to just play computer games the entire time. So, But that's you know relative to your – you have to set rules around tech in your house too or expectations around tech in your house. But the other problem is that when kids don't have free time to sort of do tasks under their own steam, they don't get a chance to exercise what's called um, self-directed executive function, which is – for example, I want to build a treehouse. Well, you can't just go outside and build a treehouse. You need to get the materials and plan how you're going to do it. And setting all of those intermediate goals leading up to a larger goal, like, for example, as I said, I want to get an A in math. Well, how do you get an A in math? You have to do these, inter, you know, you have to do this homework assignment, ask for help on this thing, all these intermediate goals to get to the bigger goal. When it's directed by the kid, that's called self-directed executive function. When it's directed by us, that's called being directive or controlling, and they don't gain anything from that in terms of building those um, those skills. Hmm. So, you know, giving kids opportunity to have downtime is incredibly important, and not overscheduling kids. And my last point is that kids are supposed to have the opportunity to try lots of different things. Childhood is a time when you figure out: Do I like sports? Do I like arts? Do I like Um, you know, doing woodworking? Do I like playing soccer? And the problem is so many kids are getting um, sort of channeled into a sport at a very young age and don't get the opportunity to to try lots of different things. And so over and over again, kids come to me um, at schools and say, because I I often say to them, what what is it you would like me to tell your parents when I speak to them this (laughs) evening? And you should, I mean, the stuff I hear from them is just amazing. But often I'll hear, I hate swimming or whatever. And I've been doing it since I was four. And I used to love it. And it was great. And I don't regret that I did it. But I don't want to do it anymore. I want to try some other things. I want to try drama. I want to try ceramics, whatever. Um, How can I get my parent to listen to me? Because they say, no, we've been doing it for too long. You're invested. Mm -hmm. It's going to look good on your college transcript. What will it look like if you quit? You know, these kinds of things. And that's really unfair to do to kids. At this point of the interview, I had to kind of just take a break for a second and ask Jessica a little bit about sports. And she didn't really address this in the book at all, but it's something that my friends and I talk about all the time, where we believe that sports plays a tremendous role in helping kids develop resilience. And our involvement in sports at a young age taught us how to make decisions. It taught us the importance of being healthy, the importance of being fit. Uh, It kept us out of trouble. And that there's so many different benefits that you can gain from doing sports, whether it's team or individual. So something that I was interested in was asking her about, you know, getting your kids into sports, an individual sport like martial arts or tennis, for example. We introduced both of our kids to tennis because my husband played in high school. Mm. He loves the sport. Our kids hate it. Well, one of them hates it. (laughs) And so he doesn't play tennis. I mean, you know, there's so many cool sports out there. And the problem is, is that 
you know, we're back to this extrinsic motivation, intrinsic motivation discussion that, you know, Dan Pink is famous for and Edward D.C.'s amazing book, Why We Do What We Do, The Science of Self-Motivation, is all about this. You're never going to get a kid to love something and fully engage in it when you're forcing them to do it through carrot and stick methods, through um, giving them your love based on their performance, through, you know, all of these sort of forcing them to do it because you feel it's best for them. A kid will not fall in love with something for those reasons. They will try to do their best to please you. They will um, really be torn up inside. Often I, I hear the, from these kids that are like, look, I'm doing this for my parents and I'm doing my best, but I'm just not getting better because I don't love it. So I don't understand this whole, I mean, I talked to, I spoke at a school recently where the parents have decided that the daughter will be a doctor. There is no discussion, and I actually independently verified this. It's this, with the administration. It's absolutely true. It was not the daughter overstating her case. The parents have decided she's going to be a doctor wow. because that's the best thing for her. And I ask you, do you, and she does, by the way, does not want to be a doctor. Do you want to go to a physician who doesn't want to be a physician? <laughs> I know so I don't because mm-hmm. they'd suck. They'd be a terrible doctor. That's right. And in the meantime, this girl feels like she has no option. She's, she's getting sick from it. And the other problem is that um, we're undermining everything like from this thing called self-efficacy, this feeling that you can, which a lot of kids are lacking, which is the ability to, uh, to change your environment based on your decisions. Mm-hmm. And, and frankly, we're getting at topics like hope as well. Look at you know positive psychology, Shane Lopez's book, Making Hope Happen. His definition of hope is a kid understanding that their life can be better and feeling like they have the power to make that better future happen. Mm -hmm. That is hope, and I'm talking to a lot of kids who are being raised under the most amazing circumstances but have no hope that they can do the things that mean something to them. And, you know, I get that this is coming at from a position of, you know, a lot of the schools where I speak are sort of, you know, wonderfully supportive parents, lots of money, financial resources, all the things kids could ever want. But I teach kids, the kids I teach are um, kids who are drug and alcohol addicted. I teach in the context of a drug and alcohol rehab. So the kids I teach have no hope for a very different reason. Mm. Um, But it's the same problem. Kids who feel like they have no control over their future are kids who are sick inside, who end up becoming, you know, are more likely to be addicted to drugs and alcohol, who are more likely to fall victim to, you know, really serious um, anxiety and depression. Yeah. Why uh, choose a child's future for them? In the same way I said to my son when he was looking at colleges that the one thing I would never do is put his college's sticker on the back of my car because that's his accomplishment, not mine. Mm. And I don't want him to pick a college based on what he thinks I want for him. Right. And, you know, giving kids that sort of freedom to come up with their, to make their own decisions, that's called autonomy. And if you read, you read Edward D.C., it is one of the three things we have to give kids in order to help them develop what's called intrinsic motivation, the motivation to do things because they want to do them for the sake of the thing itself, not because they're being told to do it. And I'm really glad I brought this up with Jessica because it raised another question in my mind, which maybe you're thinking about as a parent, or maybe it's something you experience as a parent. What do you do when you give your kids the choice and they choose ballet today? Today's Monday, tomorrow's Tuesday, and they choose soccer, and it's Wednesday, they're karate. You know, oh, Friday, they want to do equestrian. Sunday, they want to do tennis. You know, back to Monday, they're doing ballet again. It's like, oh my God, like, how do I keep up with this? Because kids have shiny penny syndrome. Ooh, shiny penny, shiny penny, shiny penny, shiny penny. And they're all over the place. So how do you balance giving them autonomy to make their own decisions and helping them understand the importance of sticking through something, the importance of patience? You know, because you don't build resilience if you allow your kids to leave karate because all of a sudden it got really hard or all of a sudden I got really bored. So I don't want to do it anymore. I want to do something else. I have a tough time with this. So I had to ask Jessica for some advice in terms of what do you do if your kid wants to start something and quit? And what do you do as a parent if you want to teach them how to stick through with something, but at the same time, you don't want to be too controlling? Yeah, I think, you know, what's really interesting is I have, I mean, obviously this is a question I get a lot. And I think having a really, uh, having a, with older kids, it really, these sports are, well, well, most kids, I suppose, um, these sports are 
usually stuck stick to a season, mm. at least at first. And a season is, uh, if you look at the research on habits, a season actually is just about the perfect amount of time to develop habits. So when parents are asking me about quitting stuff, often you can uh, the end of a season is a really good time to reevaluate. And the beginning of a season is a really good time to reevaluate, to say, look, let's look at what's on our schedule as a family. Family time is important. And by the way, I often people interpret this as my being anti-sport, which is absolutely not the case. For one of my kids, um, being an athlete in school was one of the best things that ever happened to him, and it, it developed all kinds of skills and, and character traits in him that I'm so grateful for. But being in it for the right reasons is part of that. And so talking at the beginning and saying, look, if you do this team, that's going to mean you won't have time for these other things, time with your friends or, or um, you know, time to do, time to, you know, re- have quiet reading time or whatever that thing is. So is this really a priority for you? And if you make this decision, you're in it for this season. We can reevaluate at the end of the season, but you're in it for this season. And for kids who are in those sort of sports that go on for more than like a three-month period, I think a three-month period is still a really good guideline. Um, In K.J. Delantonia's book, um, How to Be a Happier Parent, she talks about the fact that when it comes to like household duties or developing new habits, if you read Charles Duhigg, if you read any of um, the really wonderful books that have come out recently on habits, it looks like three months is a really good um, period of time to figure something out, develop new habits, get good enough at something so it starts to pay off, nice. and to see if you really so love it. So as we it. wrap up this episode, we finish up with golden nugget number seven, and then we fast forward. Maybe some of you have teenagers already. So if you have a kid who's in middle school or high school, how does parenting change for you? You're not raising a little kid anymore. You're, you've already put a lot of knowledge, a lot of effort, a lot of love into your kid. They've grown up with some lessons that have been good for them. They've grown up with some bad habits, but now they're preparing themselves for quote unquote, the real world, different issues, perhaps more serious issues, more challenging issues. How does parenting change? And what kind of advice does Jessica give to parents whose kids are now going through middle school and high school? Well, middle school in particular is a great time to say, okay, it really is time to step back. Um, If you've been running interference for your kid um, up through until about sixth grade, it's time to stop doing that. It's time for the main conduit of, um, you know, messaging between home and school to happen with the kid. Um, The kid needs to, and as a, you know, like I said, I was a middle school teacher for a long time, and it's a really, the skills of self-advocacy are, that skill is one of the most important things we teach our kids from very early on. Self-advocacy needs to start, you know, from the time the kid's in kindergarten, Um, because that's how we teach kids to say to people who don't treat us well, you can't treat me that way, or here's what I need from you. Here's the help I need. Um, So in middle school, if you haven't already been doing that, middle school is really the time to step back Um, and to realize that middle school is a big, long, is usually a three-year weaning process for high school. So if you've been doing a lot for your kid, think of that those three years as an opportunity to step back little by little so that when they get to high school, they're really doing this for themselves. And for parents whose kids are going to be going to a high school or do go to a high school where um, they have a portal that they can log into 24-7 and check in on their kids, um, I'm going to beg you to A, back off on the portal, stop checking. It is not your responsibility. The fact that the high school handed you an ID and a password doesn't mean that they're saying this is now your job. The main communication between home and school should always happen with the kids. And lots of schools are seeing the unintended consequences of opening the portal to parents, which is that Suddenly now parents are feeling like, especially when parents find out about grades before kids do, which is something that can happen because of the way the portal works, um, that they need to be the one to speak up first, and absolutely not. The kid should always be the one to talk to the teacher, and if you mean, if that means that you do a little you know, role-playing or a little counseling session before your kid needs to do that, fine but your kid needs to be the main conduit of information. And then all kinds of little things like starting to talk about, you know, what they envision for their perfect freshman year of high school or their perfect freshman year of college. And then, you know, if the kid says, well, my perfect freshman year at college would be I'd love to find a mentor, then you say, okay, great, that's a fantastic goal. 
what are the steps you plan to take in order to make that happen? Where would you go? Who are you looking for? Um, how do you go about talking to a professor or finding um, an advisor? Uh, that sort of stuff. And then, you know, the last thing I want to bring up is that I was at a college just recently, actually, and I was talking to a mother whose daughter has um, has an, a serious illness. Mm. Um, she has diabetes. And the daughter, the mother has an app where she tracks her daughter's um, blood sugar, which is great and fantastic. You know, the daughter, especially when she was in middle school and high school, may need a little text here and there to say, sweetie, I'm noticing that your blood sugar is low. Why don't you, right. you know, check in on that, um, pop a, a candy or something. However, the mother had no plans for backing off on that once her daughter went off to college. Mm. And now she lives, however, an hour and a half away. And the daughter is still not managing her own blood sugar. The mother's doing that for her and texts when her blood sugar gets low and her daughter's 20. So starting to talk and think about weaning techniques because, frankly, there isn't going to become this magic moment where they turn 18 and suddenly they know how to go to the airplane kiosk and get their boarding pass or they know how to, you know, fill out an application, go to the DMV and fill out applications or fill out an insurance form. I haven't filled out school forms, frankly, for years and years. My kids have done that. Because filling out forms is a skill. So start handing small things like that over to your kids, communications, filling out forms, making their doctor's appointments, that kind of thing, um, running their own calendar. Um, It's just really important to start weaning, to start getting your kids to a point where um, they don't need us. And, you know, that's simultaneously heartbreaking and wonderful all at the same time. But it's really quite amazing when the first time your kid comes to you and says, look, I solved this all on my own and have this beaming, happy, fulfilled look on their face. And you get to see just the benefits of letting them have a little bit more autonomy and helping them feel competent in their life. Right. There we have it. That is the gift of failure. How the best parents learn to let go so their children can succeed by Jessica Leahy and It's an absolute pleasure having Jessica on to share a different perspective on resilience. The perspective coming from somebody who is an expert at parenting. That's got to be a tough thing to be an expert at, hey? Everyone's looking at you, and if your kid's acting up, they're like, hey, the parent expert doesn't have this under control. (laughs) I'd hate to have that title. I don't know about you, but that's a tough one to have, man. I don't want that one. But in any case, what great takeaways for all you parents out there who are trying to build resilient children, who are helping your children create their own eight as you create your eight. And uh, I think we got to do a little bit more of this. And I know that uh, we had on uh, George Everly. George Everly also wrote a book about building resilience in kids. So, you know what? I got to bring him on to talk about that one because I do believe that there's a lot of you out there who, yes, you are looking after your own mind, but it's so important to help your children develop their own minds as well. So I'm going to do a little bit more effort to get some more um, authors on here who specialize in children. If you love this episode, then please do me a favor, especially if you're listening on your iPhone or your iPad or whatever, your Mac, doesn't matter. Go online and leave me a rating and a review. Very simple. All you got to do is go to the podcast app, go to shows, find the Cut the Crap show, and scroll up, and you'll see an opportunity where you can add in stars. Give me however many stars you think I deserve. I work really hard at this show, and uh, those ratings and reviews, they mean so much to me. So thank you so much in advance for doing that. Don't forget to connect with me online, whether it's LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Obviously, we got the Create Your 8 daily vlog going now, so I'm so excited about that. If you want to learn more about how to create your 8, then subscribe to the show. Like, comment, share, and get the good word out there because every single day I'm sharing a lesson, I'm sharing a story, and I'm sharing my own CY8 journey with you and my biggest takeaway from the day. That, and you can also see this good-looking mug if you've never seen it before. So that's, uh, I don't know if that's a positive or a negative thing, but anyways... <laughs> One last call to action. If you go to thecutthecrapshow.com, you click that big red button. If you love what I'm doing here and you want to support me, but you don't know how, $5 a month through Patreon, that means so much to me because you are helping me help other people in this world. And this year, I really want to donate and give back to uh, no-kill animal shelters, some shelters that really need it, that are doing amazing things. I don't know if you're an animal lover. You might be, you might not be. But I know that animals play such a big role in this in this world and they help other people create their aid, people who are going through severe depression, anxiety. And I know a lot of the people at these shelters are really struggling. So if I can do something for these people and we can all do it together, then man, that just, that makes me so happy and that helps me create my aid every day. And I hope that helps you too. 
And um, again, for you donating to me, of course, I'm doing the show, but I want to give you something extra. So I will add you to uh, a text message board where every single day you're going to receive a text message from me. It's going to hopefully help you create your eight first thing in the morning when you wake up. That is a mouthful. But anyways, that is a wrap, my friend. So thank you so much again for your attention this week. It always means a lot to me. And I will catch you back here next week and have a brand new book, brand new Golden Nuggets, an interview with an author. And of course, you know what I'm doing here every single week. Just trying to save you a little bit of time, bring you some information that can spark change in your life. I'm just trying to help you build mental toughness and resilience. Have a fantastic, productive, inspired week, everybody. I love you all. our nation's enemies or the war against my own weaknesses preparing and and sharpening my sword and honing my skills and maintaining the unmitigated daily discipline in all things where does it lead It, it can lead to war. That's fine. In fact, I am waiting. And I am ready. Because the warpath is a war against weakness. And so it leads to strength. It's a war against ignorance. And so it leads to knowledge. It's a war against confusion. And so it delivers understanding. The warpath leads to control and leads to ownership of your life. And that is the warpath. The path of fire and adversity. The path of blood and of sweat and of suffering. The war path is the preeminent path of discipline. Which is why it leads to freedom. And beyond that, in the end, it leads to